Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome back to Killer Babes. Season three. Season three. Here we are. Woohoo! On episode 41. Episode 41 and yes. Halloween. Happy Halloween. Premiere. So happy Halloween, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good. good. Oh, good to hear. Okay. <laughs> No, but really, like, <laughs> how is everyone doing with Seriously. this? It has been crazy, and we stopped right around, the, like, the hype or height of COVID-19. That's true. I think it was literally... Yeah, like, just starting. I think it was literally mid-March. Yeah. It was, like, a week before I started working like, from home or something. Yeah. And I'm, I guess it, not really when it first started, more of, like, when the quarantine became a hard quarantine is mm -hmm. when we ended up stopping. It was a good time, but also maybe a terrible time because I feel like everyone needed some podcasts during that time, you know. I think it also depends on like what you were doing at the time too. If you worked from home or if you had to go in every day, if you were a nurse, That's probably true. wasn't as great as if you were like an accountant. No offense, accountants, but I think <laughs> you could probably do that from home. That's true. Some accountants did have to go in though, probably like nursing accountants. Essential accountants. Yeah, right. So I think so <laughs> right. everyone's had a very different experience depending on where they've been at, especially depending on how quarantine hit. We are very lucky over here in our area of New England. Yeah. The cases are rising, but they're <laughs> very slow I, well. compared to other places in the US where we are like town-wise. So we're doing okay. I mean, personally, we're doing okay. Yeah. Yes. We are healthy. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. I get tested every week for work, so it's kind of a nice false sense of security. <laughs> That's true. We are trying to stay mentally sane um, as best we can, so that's going okay. I think this is going to be good for us to get back on the Killer Babes train. Yeah, give us something to do. Yeah, it's... Weird. Me having something to do on a Monday night is very, very <laughs> odd. It's it's good, but it's going to take a lot of effort for me, but I think everyone to try to hop back into these kind of oh my goodness. normal life things. <laughs> it's going to take a lot of effort. Um, I don't know how to get dressed anymore, so that's something I'm going to have to figure out at some point, but it's not high on my to-do list. Okay, clarification. Katie's been working from home since hard quarantine started. That's true. Um, yes. I have not. I'm just gonna put it out there. I'm lucky that you can have a job, and <laughs> oh yeah, so good are point. both of us. But yeah, good point. Very good point. Yes. Um, just everything is just a little bit different now, and a little bit harder, but we're making it through. I would like to also say, from the get go, okay, one thing I am trying so hard to do right now because this is my goal for this season for 2020. No. Oh. I don't believe just in for, Okay, just for season three of Killer yeah. Bear's podcast. Yes. Okay. I'm trying to not use the word like as much. Is it because somebody said something? Yes. <laughs> thousand percent. Oh, that's yes. terrible. Yeah, but I kind of agree with them. And so I'm trying not to do it. So I might be speaking slower because I have to picture the words now in my head before I say them. Interesting. And it's hard, but I'm trying to do it. It's funny, too, because in editing, I try to cut out the likes and uhs and ums. Yeah, so this is just going to be less work for editing. Nice. Hopefully. Hopefully. We'll see how it goes. Also, when I took a class on public speaking, if you slow down your speaking, people don't notice it as much as you think they would. So if you're about to say like, just pause. Mm. And then continue speaking. Mm-hmm. 
And no one will even notice. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Agreed. <laughs> no, I've been picking it up because the word um, too. I say the word um a lot. Oh, same. I say uh. I think I'm more of an uh person. Like, uh. Yeah, you kind of are. Uh, uh. I go, um. It's just not great. It's not a great sound. Oh, except if you're trying to make a point and it's more like, um, or. Oh, you're being um, like sarcastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's an acceptable use of um. Okay. Or um, when you're meditating? Yeah, yeah. So Not speaking of dumb. feedback for season three, oh, yikes, don't yeah. read any of the feedback. No, I'm just kidding. But disclaimer, we'll put like disclaimers at the front. If you want to skip the chit chat, we'll give you skip two. And then we'll just fill in the, uh, 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 we'll fill in the like, spot like, for you. Like, like, yeah, we'll go the back common, and editing. I, I sometimes it keeps me up at night. It's like, <laughs> oh, it said something along the lines of, if you are a gum slinging yes! teenager, oh God, no, it was you'll gum love smacking. these girls. It was gum, gum smacking. I didn't know you saw it. Got to me. <laughs> I didn't even text you about it because I thought it was no, so mean, them. and I didn't even text you it because I was like, oh, maybe she didn't see it. But I think it hurt the most it. because I kind of agree. Yeah, but uh-huh. also if you look at our dashboard of metrics and analytics, our age group is that kind our of age. is our yeah. Audience, so almost. I did want to kind of write back, but then I decided to just ignore the comment and take it as constructive criticism but I did want to show the statistics that 57% of our audience is 23 to 32 years of age and just because I use the word like and I do not sound intelligent when I use that word I know I am intelligent but I need to try to reflect it in my speech anyway that's all I have to say about that Yes, and that's kind of where we're at for <laughs> that season was three. Legitimately, <laughs> one comment. It's not like I got a million, and I'm mad, but <sighs> okay. I'm glad we got that off our chest. Mm-hmm. So let's skip to the updates of our podcast. Okay. Since we've been gone, we've been contacted by a few people that have been related to past episodes. The first person was Pamela Smart's mother, Linda Wojcic, and Pamela Smart was from episode 16. If you haven't listened to it, go take a listen. She wanted to enlighten some listeners on some critical facts that she claims others in the media do not wish to accept. So she reached out to us via email and sent us copies of photos and letters and wanted to clarify them in the following email that we're going to read to you. The photo of the gentleman is Dr. Roger Fossum, New Hampshire medical examiner, who is shown as he testified. His left hand indicates the entrance of the bullet and his right hand the exit. Flynn testified he shot Greg standing from behind Greg. Dr. Fossum testified, quote, standing from behind it would be extraordinarily difficult, end quote. We, Linda and company, believe Randall shot Greg from the front as Flynn is left-handed. The letters are from Flynn and Latine, who were both held in the Brentwood jail as evidenced by the attached envelopes while they are being transported to trial to testify against Pamela. Ricky Davis, an inmate in Concord, New Hampshire prison, stated in the documentary, Captivated, he was doing drugs with both of them while they were there. They gave those letters to Judge Gray, who withheld them from the jurors. Linda believes the jurors should have been allowed to decide if Flynn was truly a remorseful person or a chameleon mocking jurors behind their backs. The photo of Pam is from May 2001, receiving her Master's of Science and Law degree, summa cum laude. She is now pursuing a doctorate in Biblical Studies and helping all the women in her capacity as an ordained minister. We will be posting the photos we were sent and linking the book Linda Wojcic wrote, which is 
to live for a mother's cry for justice from my daughter, Pamela Smart's Prison Journal. And if you own a Kindle, it's free, so you can download it and read it. If you follow this case or heard about it, regardless of what you believe, we think that sharing all sides of the story is important. Now we get our information from the public court cases, news stations, books, forums, etc. right? We're not judges or legal people at all, but I think this is a great gentle reminder that even though we're doing these types of episodes, some are light, which the following one is a little bit light and it's a little bit heavy, but there's all real people behind these stories. And all the people related who knew the victims or the accused, you could classify them all as victims in some way, right? They've lost family members, friends. They may have lost the very person they thought they knew. So that's why we wanted to share this email with you. And the, uh, Linda Wojcic had reached out to share this as well. So this was important to her. With that in mind, we also had resounding positive feedback from our season two closer on the New Bedford Highway killings in our interview with Maureen Boyle, reporter and author. And if you haven't heard that one, please take a listen because it's local, it's a New England unsolved case, and it could really use everyone's attention. But that's one of the updates. We do have some more, but we'll share them in the following episodes of what we've what we've gotten so far. Update corner. Yeah. I like it. Cool. Well, with that... I think that's enough updates. I think we should jump into the new season. Yes, season please. Season three that Woo! everyone has been waiting for, hopefully, and so have we. And with that, we are back in business on the spookiest night of, indeed, the spookiest <laughs> year, 2020. Mm-hmm. The understatement of the century. Happy Halloween, folks. You want some spooky shit? This is it. This is it. For this week's opening, we're checking out one of the most supposedly haunted places in Rhode Island, Colt State Park. This park is 464 acres of rolling green. It showcases a gorgeous shoreline in the smallest state. Colt State Park is often referred to as the gem of the state park system. Cute. Cute. The west side of the park opens into Narragansett Bay. It's open year-round and offers four miles of bike trails. It's a really nice place to take the family, five out of five stars, Really cute. The bike trail is actually really nice if you guys are into biking. Yeah, I wish um, we had biked it. I know, we should. I've biked it a few times, like, in the summer. It's just a nice trail. Like, it's really well paved, and it's a nice scenery. Like, it's by the water. Yeah. We saw a lot of people flying kites, so if that's something you're into, <laughs> check it out for that as well. We're not judging. The town of Bristol, Rhode Island, was one of the few Rhode Island towns actually laid out in the New England style with a town common and then a grid pattern made up of streets and lanes. The park, in contrast, is wide open and is linked to the town throughout history. And their history isn't great. Samuel P. Colt, who built the showcase farm that we show later on social media, look us up on the gram, we'll drop the link later. Samuel Colt was a grandson of the famous DeWolf family of Bristol. Now, the DeWolfs were what, the ones who turned Bristol into a thriving port in the late 18th and 19th centuries. They very unfortunately carried on with the slave trade, even after it was outlawed in the state of Rhode Island. They were a very politically powerful family, and they could basically do anything they wanted, because money. Mm-hmm. They got their own candidate, which was their brother-in-law, Charles Collins, appointed as U.S. Customs Collector, And they were able to escape the law that way when Thomas Jefferson appointed him. Jefferson and his Secretary of the Treasury 
knew about what was going on, but the DeWolfs were major campaign contributors, so he probably wasn't going to cause too much trouble for them. The DeWolfs needed this leeway because they had plantations in Cuba for the rum demand. In the late 18th century, rum was a hot commodity on the West African coast as part of the slave trade. Rum distilleries were built in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. We'll get into this a little bit later too. The DeWolfs had a rum distillery. They would take rum to West Africa, they would trade it for people, and then bring the slaves back to Charleston, South Carolina, Caribbean ports, and other southern states. In Cuba, they also owned sugar and coffee plantations because if you aren't up on your liquor knowledge, molasses from the sugar plantations is the key ingredient for rum making. Yum. <laughs> Yum. On top of a fleet of ships, the DeWolfs also had an auction house in Charleston. They developed their own insurance company and bank, built crazy mansions on Hope Street. And it's not surprising that a lot of the other prominent families in Rhode Island were in on their schemes in cahoots. Around the same time, James DeWolf is born, and his parents are Mark DeWolf, who's a slave trader, and Abigail Potter, who also comes from a slave trading family. During the American Revolution, he sailed as a teenager on a private armed vessel, and after the war, he becomes captain, obviously, and begins his own slave trade, bringing enslaved farm workers from Cuba to the American South to work on plantations that we had just mentioned. Now, reminder. Rhode Island did ban slavery in 1787, but the DeWolfs already knew how to get around the law, i.e. just hire your family into the law. And Seems like a problem-solved. Pretty good way. I'm pretty sure that still happens today. Pretty sure other people have picked up on that too, yeah. So listeners, we thought this would be a good time and place to provide you with a timeline regarding slavery and its abolishment in the United States. It's a bit lengthy, but at the same time, we had a hard time trying to narrow down what to include and what not to include because everything's really important and history you just can't cut it sometimes <laughs> what you can't you just can't cut it you just can't certainly the subject of slavery is bigger than a timeline and we can't just fit it into episode because it really honestly could be a whole season nevertheless gear up for this little mid-episode history lesson the majority of this information is coming from history.com. Although there is no clear starting date to when slavery began in the U.S., many consider 1619 to be a significant starting point. This is when the privateer, the White Lion, brought 20 African slaves ashore into the British colony of Jamestown, Virginia. Throughout the remaining 17th and 18th century, European settlers in North America turned to enslaved Africans for a cheaper, more plentiful labor source. And although we don't have accurate or concrete figures, it's estimated that six to seven million enslaved people were imported to the New World during the 18th century alone. That's a staggering amount. The American Revolution was a political revolution that occurred between 1765 and 1783. During this time, the American patriots in the 13 colonies defeated the British in the American Revolutionary War gaining independence from the British crown and officially establishing the U.S. of A. After the American Revolution, many U.S. colonists, particularly, particularly in the North, began to link the oppression of enslaved Africans to their own oppression by the British and began to call for an end to slavery. On September 17, 1787, the Constitution of the United States was signed in order to establish America's national government and fundamental laws and guaranteed certain basic rights for citizens. 
the Constitution counted each enslaved person as three-fifths of a person for the purpose of taxation and representation in Congress, and also guaranteed the right to repossess any, quote, person held to service or labor, end quote, which was deliberately ambiguous so that they could just say basically the right to slavery. In fact, nowhere in the original Constitution was slavery outright mentioned, giving the impression that race-based slavery was not a thing in America. As Abraham Lincoln would later explain, quote, thus the thing is hid away in the Constitution, just as an afflicted man hides away a wen or a cancer, which he dares not cut out at once, lest he bleed to death, end quote. While slavery itself was never widespread in the North, many of the area's businessmen grew rich on the slave trade and investments in the Southern plantations. Between 1774 and 1804, all of the Northern states abolished slavery. And interestingly enough, the very first anti-slavery statute in the U.S. colonies was passed in what is now Rhode Island on May 18, 1652. The statute only applied to white and black people at first, but in 1676 included the prohibition of enslavement of Native Americans. It all sounds really cool, but in actuality, the law only applied to Providence and Warwick and banned lifetime ownership of enslaved people. So it leaves out quite a few other people. And there's really no evidence that it was even enforced. In fact, by 1750, Rhode Island had the highest percentage of enslaved people in New England, about twice the nor northern average. The reality is that Rhode Island dominated the northern trade of enslaved people in Newport, was the major slave trading post in North America. The region served as supplier for the West Indies, and in return, New England was supplied molasses, which they used to distill rum. Thus, Rhode Island became the number one exporter of rum, and the Dewall family became very rich and powerful. From the 1830s to the 1860s, the abolitionist movement, a movement to abolish slavery in America, gained strength under the leadership of free black people, such as Frederick Douglass and white supporters. During this time, the Underground Railroad helped enslaved people escape from Southern plantations to the North. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected as the president of the United States. This seemed to be the breaking point for the South. The American Civil War took place from 1861 to 1865. The war took place in the United States between the Northern states loyal to the Union and the southern states that had seceded to form the Confederate States of America. The Confederate States advocated for states' rights, including the right to uphold slavery. On September 22, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln issued a preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And then on January 1, 1863, he made it official that, quote, slaves within any state or designated part of a state in rebellion shall be then, thenceforth, and forever freed. Important to note here, the Emancipation Proclamation in itself did not end slavery in the United States, as it only applied to the 11 Confederate states then at war against the Union, and only to the portion of those states not already under Union control. To make emancipation permanent would take a constitutional amendment abolishing the institution of slavery itself. On June 19, 1865, Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger landed in Galveston, Texas, with news that the Civil War had ended and that the enslaved people were now free. This was two and a half years after President Abraham Lincoln issued the official Emancipation Proclamation. 
Although the proclamation really had little impact on the Texans because there was a big lack of Union troops in that area who could actually enforce the order. But with the surrender of General Lee in April of 1865 and the arrival of General Granger's regiment, the proclamation was finally upheld. In 1865, at the close of the Civil War, the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified to abolish slavery in the United States. However, even with the abolishment of slavery, Black Americans were still prevented from being truly free with the passing of Black Codes, which were a set of restrictive laws designated to ensure the availability of Black Americans as a cheap labor force. Under those codes, many states required Black Americans to sign yearly contracts. If they refused, they risked being arrested, fined, and forced back into unpaid labor. These Black Codes were the roots of the Jim Crow laws, a collection of state and local statutes that legalized racial segregation that existed from 1865 all the way up to 1968. And then in 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, which legally ended the segregation that had been institutionalized by the Jim Crow laws. So we ended our timeline here, but we did think it was important to note that these events can't really fully be contained in a straightforward timeline-esque style. And although slavery was officially abolished in 1865 and Jim Crow laws and segregation were officially ended in 1964, this does not indicate the existence of full equality or the compliance with anti-racism laws in this country. And we will leave it at that. But if you do want more resources to do some learning on your own time, which we highly encourage everyone to do. Highly encourage. Please check out the link. There's a link in our Instagram bio. And if you click on the anti-racism podcast list, that will lead you to an article that lists 10 podcasts for places for you to start. Okay, so that was our brief history lesson. And it's super important because it goes with the story. So we're jumping back now to the DeWolf family of Rhode Island. And we're in the late 1700s. James DeWolf marries Nancy Ann Bradford, who was the great, great, great granddaughter of William Bradford. You might have heard the name, governor of Plymouth Colony and the daughter of another William Bradford, who would later be elected to the U.S. Senate. So her family is pretty powerful as well. In 1791, a warrant was issued for the arrest of Captain James DeWolf. He's sailing on Polly, his slave ship, from Africa to Cuba with 142 slaves and a crew of 15. One enslaved African woman comes down with smallpox, which was very common during these travels, and James DeWolf ordered she be tied to a chair and brought to the ship's deck. Her condition got worse, and DeWolf asked for a volunteer to throw the woman overboard. The crew refused, so James DeWolf took it upon himself. He asked a sailor to attach a grappling hook to her chair, and two men lowered her into the ocean where she sank immediately. Unfortunately, this story isn't very unusual, and James DeWolf is pretty cold-hearted and is quoted to have said that he regretted the loss of such a good chair. Now, six slaves were often tossed overboard as to not infect the rest of the ship, but under the Federal Crimes Act of 1790, murder on the high seas was considered highly illegal. When he landed in Rhode Island, it's recorded that he sold 109 slaves and then kept 10 for himself. 
And this also broke the Rhode Island Act of 1787, which decreed no slave should be brought to Rhode Island. Somehow, someone found out about the murder abroad aboard Polly and a federal grand jury investigated and charged James DeWolf with murder. Attorney General John Jay issued a warrant for his arrest, but James DeWolf was gone. He had fled to the Caribbean islands, leaving his family in Bristol, Rhode Island. He was eventually discovered in the West Indies and charged with murder, probably because he still wrote letters to his brother. The two men who were on DeWolf's ship testified they had to throw the woman overboard to quote, save the crew invaluable cargo from catching smallpox. The prosecuting attorney filed a formal declaration that he did not want to prosecute the case. DeWolf then moved to St. Thomas, where he was also charged with murder. No one testified against him and the judge ruled in his favor. Meanwhile, back at home, the DeWolf family and probably the Bradford family were working to drop the charges in Rhode Island. And after four years, the federal marshal in Rhode Island dropped the arrest warrant against James DeWolf and he returned to Bristol. Upon his return, James DeWolf served 17 years as Rhode Island State Senator, and in 1821, he was elected to the U.S. Senate. He continued his slave trading, and DeWolf family is estimated to have brought over 11,000 enslaved people to the United States, which is interesting because a lot of people think that slavery in the North didn't really exist, but I think these numbers can prove otherwise. This is huge in the North. Yeah, I mean, I think from what I was reading, like the North maybe didn't enslave people for people for labor as much because basically the things that we were making in the North crop-wise were the same kinds of things that England was making. So we couldn't really sell the things to England. So instead of using enslaved people directly for forced labor on farms and such, the North dealt a lot more in the trade, slave trade. So can't say we're uh, guilt-free up yeah, here in Massachusetts. Any um, nope. No. And we had a lot more factories up here that used the cotton from the South to make things Products in the factories. Yeah. yeah. So we were um, quite benefiting from it as well. Yes. In 1809, he invested in the Arkwright Manufacturing Company, which during the War of 1812, he fitted out privateers that captured 40 British ships worth more than $5 million. When he died in 1837 in New York City, he was believed to be the second wealthiest man in the United States. His daughter, Abby, married Charles Dana Gibson, and their grandson was also named Charles Dana Gibson, which is a little confusing. But the artist who created the Gibson girl is their grandson. And if you're not familiar with it, it's the famous personification of the feminine ideal of physical attractiveness as portrayed by the pen and ink illustrations. They're pretty famous. Um, we'll show a photo of it. It's pretty cool. They're actually kind of pretty, but just a fun fact. I don't know what those are. I'll show you. <laughs> what do you think I'll recognize them? Um, not really an artiste. I don't think you'll recognize them, but oh. the style of what he did is pretty famous now. So it might be like, oh, that's cool. Maybe that's where they got it from. Okay. okay. I actually kind of think I know what you mean. Okay. We'll see. Cool. Their monopoly over Bristol ended in the 1840s. And when their monopoly ended, they dragged the town into bankruptcy. There's a good film that the Smithsonian Magazine did. It's actually an article on filmmaker Katrina Brown, who then did a film on her New England ancestors, who turned out to be the DeWolfs. 
She invites DeWolf descendants to be on film while they research their history together. And they actually go and visit the different places that their descendants had done the slave trading. And they talked about how impactful it was to them. And if you get a chance and you're interested in it, I would definitely check it out. It's called Traces of the Trade, a story from the deep north. So 25 years and a generation later, the Colt family, grandsons of George DeWolf and great-grandsons of Senator James DeWolf, moved back into town and began a new chapter in the story of the great folks, as the DeWolfs and the Colts were known by the local population. While LeBaron Colt ultimately became a U.S. Senator, it was his brother, Samuel Pomeroy Colt. That's kind of cute for a middle name, Pomeroy. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, it was Samuel Pomeroy Colt who rebuilt the family fortune. Also a lawyer, like his brother, but less successful in politics, Samuel Colt made his fortune in banking and manufacturing. Not only did he manage to restore his family's money, but he erased a good deal of the blot on the family crust caused by the fall of the DeWolf family and the ruin of the town. Operating in an age of aggressive capital, Colt assembled local banks at the emergence of the Industrial Trust Company, the forerunner of Fleet Bank, which became the largest financial institute institution in the state of Rhode Island. He knitted together rubber companies in Bristol, Providence, and Woonsocket, which evolved into the United States Rubber Company. Ah, yes, we all know and love the Rubber Company. He served as president of the Industrial National Trust and U.S. Rubber. He supported local civic projects like the Colt Memorial High School as a way of integrating himself to the town, and he opened his private estate, the Colt Farm, Colt. I keep saying Colt. Well, I got Colts on the brain. The Colt. I keep saying, I know I've said Colt a million times. Colt. C-O-L-T. Farm. To the public. In 1905, Colt assembled the parcels of land which would become his farm on Papasquash Neck from lands owned by old Bristol families. These were the farms of the Chase, Church, and Van Winkle families. Colt Farm, now Colt State Park, was a showcase of wealth. The entrance to the property showed a pair of bronze bulls. Throughout the drive to the main house and its complex of barns, a party casino, and stables, Colt dotted the landscape with examples of European sculpture and statue, statuary of mythical Greek gods and goddesses. This display of the human form prompted one of Colt's relatives to call the drive to the casino slash party pavilion Wall Street an avenue of the bulls and the bears. Colt prided himself on operating the farm to breed prized Jersey cattle. The magnificent cow barn is one of the surviving structures still in the park. As local town histories note, no expense was spared on Colt's prized herd. Quote, there was one employee for each cow. Wow. <laughs> those were That's some crazy. care of cows. You see those commercials that say like your meat is from happy cows or whatever yeah. these well i can't actually say that they were happy i wasn't there i can't i don't know if the cows were happy but they were well cared for because there was one employee for each of them the horns were polished and their tails were washed daily that's better than me <laughs> uh, so the spotless comfortable barn was even heated in the winter damn damn <sighs> Colt's desire to share hospitality to the public and a philosophical forerunner to using the site as a state park 
was engraved in marble at the main entrance. Colt Farm, private property, public welcome. A visitor to the farm once wrote, quote, if I were the biggest liar in the world, I could not exaggerate the magnitude and the wonders of Colt Farm. Wow. Samuel P. Colt died in 1921. Disputes about his will, clouded by disagreements among family members, stalled attempts by the state to acquire the property by the Metropolitan Park Commission in 1935. During this time, the place was overrun with theft and vandalism. It wasn't until 1965, using Green Acres funds, that the state bought the farm for use as a park. In the meantime, throughout the intervening years, the estate was managed by the Industrial Trust Company. Governor John H. Chafee dedicated the park in 1968. Today, a statue of Chafee overlooks the landscape of an open-air chapel by the sea, 10 playing fields, six picnic groves, and a 55-foot observation tower, restrooms, a public boat ramp, and four miles of walking and jogging trails, bicycle and bridle trails. That means for horses, right? Yeah. I wouldn't know what to do if I was riding down a bike trail and a horse came through. As long as they weren't cantering, I think you'd be able to avoid, avoid them. Cantering? <laughs> like, I think you'd be okay. Uh, they're not that wide. I don't know. I would definitely um, scoochy scooch, but interesting. Yeah, okay. maybe, maybe stop, let them go by first. I, I don't know. <laughs> who yields to who? I think they're supposed to use their own trails, but on the off yeah, chance you see them on the I don't think you're supposed trail. to be able to ride your <laughs> horses down these. Don't, you didn't hear that from us. No, no, no. Do whatever you want with your horses. I'm not here to tell you what to do. Well, that's true. So we gave you some pretty good history, right? And you might be wondering, when are you going to get to the haunted part? <laughs> it sounds like a great place. Yeah. It is. It is a really nice place. But there are a couple stories and legends, and locals argue about when the park started its hauntings. There seems to be a pre-Samuel Colt and a post-Samuel Colt time period where hauntings are measured. Some claim it started long before Samuel Colt, and the area was rumored to may it may have been the home of sacred Indian burial grounds, which, if you look on a map, it was part of Narragansett and the Wampanoag native land. And as we said before, this is how all horror movies start. A mm -hmm. place built on sacred burial ground. Also, oh, I didn't realize it was on sacred burial ground. Yeah, and then they build this huge house, move in, and boom, haunted. Hmm. But this is a great plug for an app and a website that I, I shouldn't even say plug. We don't get paid for any of this, but I found it and I thought it was really cool. It's a native land and it seeks to map indigenous languages, treaties and territories. So you can look up where you live and what land it used to be a part of slash should be. It's native hyphen land dot CA or just type in native land and it'll show up. So it's a website and an app. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it, it's very well laid out. You keep reading and I'm going to go on up. it. Okay, cool. We couldn't find any information that showed anything about burial grounds, but I guess we could also say you shouldn't discount it. Others say in his day, Samuel Colt never complained about ghosts and hauntings when he was alive. And then some say that the issue started because he went mad because his land was misused and unappreciated. So he tormented everyone by watching over it himself becoming a ghost, and doing his best to get rid of anyone who angers him. There's also a Hauntings of Linden Place guided tour in October, but unfortunately due to COVID-19, it was not available to the public, slash it wasn't even open, but 
In the regular times, it's a one-hour guided tour that covers the entire mansion and the ghost stories associated with the DeWolf and Colt family and the, quote, eerie amusements of the 19th century, end quote. The 200-year-old mansion has rooms that are lit by candlelight, and during the tour, they mention the rumored hauntings of Colt Farm, Colt Memorial School, the vampires that throughout history have roamed the towns of Rhode Island in the 1800s, which we did a podcast to, and mediums summoning the return of the lost, which also is never a good idea. That's also in a lot of horror movies. (laughs) Rumors of two other unrelated incidents have also led to speculation that trails at this park are some of the most haunted spots in the state. This is coming from the Only In Your State website. According to legend, the park originally was a working farm. Well, we know it was in the 50s or 60s, before being sold to the state, they had a stable hand who perished in the barn while helping out with those prized Jersey cattle Katie was talking about. In the place of the barn, there's a park office, and we went to the park office, and it's pretty nice, actually. I mean, we didn't go in, but it was closed, but the outside was really nice and pretty. It looked kind of idyllic, idyllic. You just thought it looked like What's a castle. They look like a mini castle. Oh, I thought I thought you were going to say the interior decorating show that you like. Oh, no. <laughs> but it was pretty. It was really pretty. <laughs> so people at the park office say that there's a spirit that's responsible for slamming doors, opening doors, turning lights on and off, and paranormal experiences. And some park workers refuse to be alone and claim to hear footsteps. Or they claim to hear someone speaking to them. One person said they saw the figure of a man walking the grounds and told stories of mean pranks pulled while trying to work. Mean pranks. Boo. Those kids. (laughs) I think the figure of a man walking the grounds, though, could be anybody because these are open grounds. (laughs) It literally could be anybody. (laughs) But I'm not trying to discount that. (laughs) Who knows? I'm just saying. There were a lot of people meandering about with their dogs and no dogs and just walking around. Again, it is open to the public. Yes. (laughs) The second paranormal tale reports that two children drowned at the park in the 70s. There was a report that a man was headed towards his car from the beach at what is known as, quote, Suicide Hill, which I have never heard it called that. Me neither. He saw two little girls walking up the path towards him, and then they vanished suddenly. These two young girls allegedly follow hikers throughout the park with giggles and attempt to scare visitors away. A worker at the park allegedly confirmed that one of his ex-co-workers also saw two girls and heard giggling in a wooded area. It's unclear how they scare visitors away, and I don't know what their giggle sounds like, but depending on the giggle, maybe they scare them away that way. <laughs> it's true. Some giggles are scarier than others. Very true. However, we didn't see two giggly girls in that park. Besides us, <laughs> we were the two giggly girls when maybe we went we there. Maybe we were so... possessed. Oh, maybe that's Ooh. what happens. Okay, so tell us some of the testimonials. Okay, I will, but I just want to say first, I went on the website, and we are in Wampanoag territory, and it can you can even show the language if you want, which is Nahantic for the Wampanoag. Yeah, check it out. It's really and cool. You can, like, click on it and find more info. Pretty cool. It's very well designed. Anyway, so here are some testimonials from the visitors who have commented on the forum of Ghosts of America. Kaylee writes, quote... I was slowly walking in the barn of Colt State Park, and all of a sudden, I heard something scary. It was like, no, 
And then I went and checked in the room and I got locked in, but my friend's mom got me out by breaking the door. It was so scary. Alex said, I live in Bristol, Rhode Island, and I have seen an apparition of a girl at Colt State Park, which is like 10 minutes from my house. I'm thinking it was just someone, but I think it's a spirit. Not to mention there's a cemetery there to which I see something like an orb of light. Interestingly enough, on hauntedplaces.org, the Colt State Park received an 84% out of 100% on rate this haunt. It was really high. It's like Rotten Tomatoes for Haunted Places. Yeah. And that's high. I mean. I thought it was really high. I would like to see what the, like, rubric is, like, the grading rubric. Like, Me what's too. the criteria? Is it just, like, a pretty place? Or, like, does it legit have to be haunted? Uh, I don't know. But it got an 84. So, there's a lot of spooky places in Rhode Island. So, if you're in the area, we recommend, I do recommend going to the park. If not for a good scare, then for a good hike and a good view. Bring a shakukuri board. Have sure. a picnic. Yeah. Um, why not? You might you might be able to find a couple more haunts in the area, too. Who knows? Beautiful Colt State Park is more than just a great place for a seaside walk in nature with your dog or cat. It's also a great place to see or try and see some paranormal experiences and meet some ghosty ghosts. And depending on the ghost, you might just get a trick or a treat. Who knows? Who knows? It's 2020, so it'll probably be a trick. It will most definitely be a trick. So that's it. That's all. We've got to wrap it up, though, because we've got some place to be. Well, on the night this podcast is coming out, we are, we'll be exploring some uh, spooky pumpkins, some spooky pumpkin carvings, to be more specific. Yes, it's Roger Williams in Rhode Island. Yeah. Jekyll another Spectacular. Sp- another spooky Rhode Island stop. Some spooky pumpkins. Yeah, I'm interested this year, though, because usually it's a walkthrough, but this year it's a drive-through, so I'm a little interested. I have been thinking about this because I'm very curious to see, like, I mean, I guess they must have stuff on both sides of you. So if I'm sitting on one side, say I'm the driver, I can't go to the other side. You're you're 50% capacity. You can only see 50% of the pumpkins. It's true. So that's a little bit disappointing, but I'm going, I'm. I have my mind open. I'd like to see what they do with it. I hope they still play the spooky music. <laughs> I mean, it'd be cool if they were still selling like beers and they would just like hand it to you. Oh, wait, you're driving. They're not going to do that. Forgot about that. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> um, maybe the passengers. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll let you know. Yeah, I'm sure we will. But besides that, we hope everybody is having a safe a safe and fun Halloween, which aren't you just sitting on your couch drinking wine and watching scary movies and eating candy? Which that sounds really fun. That sounds honestly. great. I hope you are. I hope you're having a great time. Yes. Don't forget to check out our Instagram for the photos that we mentioned along in the podcast. Lots of photos. Including, yeah, a lot of photos of Colt State Park and some of the emblems that we've talked about, like the brass Bulls. bulls. <laughs> I don't know. You were gonna say something called. else. Yeah, I was gonna say something else. <laughs> They've yep. got those too. They got those, those too. You'll have to zoom in real close. Mm-hmm. But um, go check us out there at Killer Babes Podcast on Instagram, Killer Babes Pod on Twitter. We're on Face. Are we on Facebook? Yes, we we're are. on. Just because you deleted Facebook doesn't mean I'm that all for we Facebook didn't. personally, so it's dead to me. But I guess we have one. I acknowledge that there are a lot of people who use Facebook as a tool for communication. 
Sure. And then you can also email <laughs> us at killerbabespodcast at gmail.com. Please email us. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Let us know what you guys want to hear in season three. Otherwise, it's really just going to be more of whatever what we've been we doing want. all along, which yeah. is these haunty spooks and some true crime, which I'm I'm pretty excited to get into that. Me too. Um, some good stuff out there. Yeah, we'll try to get all of the New England states. But as always, if you guys have a hometown story or anything that you're interested in want to hear about, let us know. No, we will do it. Yeah, I swear. And with that, that is episode 41 of season three, the Yay. Killer Bees podcast. Thank you. See ya. Bye.